Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Tantra's Mantra where we go behind and beyond the tech news headlines. I am Prakash Sangam, founder of Tantra Analyst and your host. Today we will discuss the chip shortage that has marred the industry for more than a year now. This acute shortage has made everybody realize how chips touch almost every aspect of our lives, be it automotives, smartphones, computers, cameras, sensors, and all the IoT devices at our homes and so on. The shortage uh, put a sharp focus on semiconductor supply chain as well. Everybody is now trying to understand how it works, why it went uh, into a tailspin recently, what is needed to recover from the current situation, and most importantly, when will we come out of this supply squeeze that we are seeing now? Actually, Qualcomm commissioned a study through Accenture to explore various aspects of a semiconductor value chain, the reasons behind this supply shortage, and advised the industry on how to come out of it. Accenture subsequently published a comprehensive report, which is you know, more than 100 pages long. I read through all of them. It indeed is a very insightful and informative report. Even though I have been in the semi-industry for more than 20 years, I still found a few tidbits that I was not aware of. I'll include a link to the full report in the description of this podcast. I highly encourage you guys to check it out. So to discuss this report, we have two prominent personalities with us today. Uh, first one is Timothy Chu, who is one of the authors of this report. He is a senior manager in Accenture's high-tech semiconductor practice. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. And then uh, with him, we have Fallon Unig, who is director of economic strategy at Qualcomm. Fallon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Prakash. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Perfect. So let's get started with some quick introductions. Let's start with uh, Fallon. Fallon, why don't you tell us about your background and what you do at Qualcomm? Yeah, sure. So at Qualcomm, um, I work with the global economics team, which is sort of the in-house think tank um, led by our chief economist at Qualcomm. And I mainly focus on semiconductor supply chain issues and semiconductor market and industry uh, writ large. Just a bit of background, I'm relatively new to Qualcomm, having joined in October of last year. Prior, I was the chief economist uh, at the Semiconductor Industry Association since 2012. And then prior to that, I got my start in covering and analyzing the semiconductor industry and market uh, with the U.S. government uh, with an agency called the U.S. International Trade Commission starting in 2003. So almost 20 years now, I've been sort of focusing on <laughs> semiconductor issues. So it's been a long time. Well, yeah, that indeed is a long time. And you're the right person to address the issue that we have at hand today. Uh, Tim? Sure. Thank you. So um, as previously mentioned, I'm, I'm a senior manager in Accenture's high-tech strategy semiconductor practice. In this practice, I've been in this role for close to a decade where we focus on industry trends, uh, growth strategy, and then more enthusiastically, the technology trends associated with this industry and advise our clients accordingly. Additionally, prior to Accenture, I spent close to another decade in semiconductor manufacturing directly. And so uh, direct hands-on experience, um, seeing how these products are made and how they end up in consumers' hand has been uh, very insightful in helping inform our strategy uh, at Accenture. Very well. Uh, thank you both for uh, coming uh, to the show. Let's jump on to this study and the report. So some basics first. So what was the primary objective of this study and the report? And what are the, some of the key findings that you, uh, that you saw when doing the study? 
I'll uh, kind of take a first crack at answering this question and Falan, feel free to chime in uh, with your perspective as well, right? Um, we were first approached by Qualcomm to partner with them on this particular paper uh, due to the increased visibility in the semi-industry in today's environment specifically. Um, we were really excited to partner with them. And where we landed was to come up with a comprehensive study that fully encapsulates everything involved in the semiconductor value chain, not the supply chain. And so we thought it was a very important distinction and one that was the primary driver for this paper. Okay. And how do you differentiate between the value and supply chain? Yeah. So, you know, supply chain is definitely front and center in public perception, right? Because it determines or it, it refers specifically to the ability to procure products in silicon that um, are necessary for the end user. Uh-huh. Uh, when we talk about the value chain, we want it to go deeper into it, right? So beyond just the actual supply, what parts of the semiconductor process and the semiconductor industry are bringing value to the end customer, right? So it starts all the way back from raw materials into the equipment providers, into the R&D associated with designing the chips, Mm -hmm. the corresponding R&D associated with the process technology, and all the enablement that that is necessary to drive uh, supply. Okay. And Prakash, I would just say, I think, you know, this report has come at really the right the right time. You know, I think over the past year to two years, um, there has been just a, an intense focus on learning about the semiconductor industry and, and how it works. And, um, you know, I think um, this report uh, sort of explains that and and the distinction between just simply thinking about, about the global uh, supply chain for semiconductors. And as Tim mentioned, talking more um, nuanced uh, in a more nuanced manner about the value chain that's created along that supply chain, uh, I think it's been a, a real great sort of value add of the report's uh, findings. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how uh, industry is not just the main line in the supply chain, but how many other industries connecting to this, right? It was a revelation for me as well, reading the full report, right? So oh my gosh. the chemicals and the others, and people think, okay, there are chipset suppliers, there are fabs yeah. and such, right? But there's so much goes into the ecosystem as such in making the chips uh, possible. It's incredibly complicated. Uh-huh. And I think um, I think the, the report really helps to explain um, just how complicated and interdependent and globally oriented uh, the industry is and has been for, for decades, right? And so, you know, it's sort of uh, an industry that requires, um, you know, a fine-tuned, delicate balance to to operate smoothly in this global uh, environment and, and done so quite successfully in the long term. And obviously, there's been short-term disruptions to that, which we can get into. But I think, um, you know, I think that has been sort of uh, very helpful in educating the general public about um, just how complicated uh, making a chip is. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So let's jump into this chip shortage uh, right in. In my view, it was a perfect storm, right? I know there's a global pandemic happening. Uh, there are tons of geopolitical issues. Uh, there is a you know, war uh, that started in the, in the way. And now inflation is hitting. So do you think all of these other external things further exacerbated the already fragile uh, semi-supply chain? Yeah, so it, it's a really great question. What I'd like to say is that the semiconductor supply chain, it's always been built on a knife's edge, right? It's, it's the inherent nature of semiconductor economics, mm-hmm. right? The, the high cost of R&D, the high cost of manufacturing, um, you couple that with 
uh, effectively five to seven year long lead times in the uh-huh. in the demand signal between the end customer and and where you really start to impact change in the value chain. Um, that results in the value chain being built to be as as optimized and efficient as possible. Uh-huh. Right now, the flip side is as you call out. Right, these characteristics, when you couple them with the longer lead times and the associated signals from the end user, the way that ripples all the way back to manufacturing, that results in a supply chain that dramatically overreacts to disruption, whether it's positive or negative disruption. Uh-huh. Right, and that overreaction um, propagates through the entire value chain in a very profound way. You know, you called it a perfect storm, um, and one of the key statements in in the paper is that you know, COVID nineteen or the pandemic, right? It did not cause uh, the supply chain issues, it really exacerbated uh, supply chain issues in an industry that was that is primed to these sort of ripple effects. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was so fragile. It was, as you said, on the knife edge, all it needed was a small push. And we had many small, not just small, many large pushes to really push it to the brink of, uh, of this collapse, as you see. I, I don't know if I would call the supply chain fragile specifically. Right. It, uh-huh. I think the more accurate description would be optimized, right? Because it's optimized for the economics of the semiconductor industry. Um, it's not yeah, really fragile. It is. It is the nature of. Uh, it is the nature of the business to uh, have these kinds of long uh, demand signals uh, that take time to manifest themselves through each stage of the value chain. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Fallon. I would just add one thing, you know, I think Perfect Storm certainly helps characterize it. One uh, unique aspect, I think, of over the past couple of years of what's happened is what, and I think um, Tim has alluded to this, um, is the demand environment, right? You know, I think usually the industry is pretty good at meeting demand and trying to, you know, sort of get supply right. When demand is understood and when demand is expected and, and, the, and the forecast is pretty clear. So what we saw over the past couple of years is uh, what I like to, to say is, unprecedented and unanticipated levels of demand, right? And that's basically because mm-hmm. society just shifted in terms of how it behaved, right? We had school from home, work from home, people were starting to use Zoom and Teams and all these other platforms that didn't weren't anticipated, right? And so that put a lot of unanticipated and unprecedented increase in demand. And so that's, in my mind, you know, what has been unique about over the past couple of years issue with the chip shortage is it's not because the industry has, has refused to or has not um, actually increased levels of capacity. Uh, it has actually to, to be you know, unprecedented levels of added capacity. In fact, last year in 2021, the industry sold more chips than in any other year previous. Over a trillion units of chips were sold in 2021. Uh, that's the, only the second time in the history of the industry that the industry has actually sold over a trillion units in one year. Um, so the industry has has tried to to meet demand by successfully increasing supply. It just hasn't been able to increase it to the unprecedented levels of demand that uh, had had has existed. Yeah, true, and, and it's like there was increased demand, and then there are supply interruptions. Okay, so so one thing it is really interesting is that the chip shortage is across the board across every industry, but it is felt much more in automotive than say smartphones or PCs. For example, the iPhones, they are able to announce and launch the iPhones they did before. Same with say, you know, Galaxy phones, their cadence is the same as before. Even Qualcomm chips for that matter are being, you know, announced and launched the way they were before. But when you look at automotives, the the shortage is really, really acute. 
you know people really feel it why, why do you think is that the case yeah so i i think there are a couple factors that play into this and it's a very astute observation right so mm-hmm. first it's it's the type of technology involved in the design and manufacturing of the chips between iphone uh, and androids mm-hmm. right that technology utilizes newer more advanced processes right the investment that's has already been made to create this capability and and the high cost of r&d to necessitate that capability mm-hmm. also requires the high prices and premium prioritization uh, necessary to make that production financially viable mm-hmm. right now when you look at the automotive industry it behaves slightly differently mm-hmm. right and, and and the reason it behaves differently is a direct result of the industry and the customers they service mm-hmm. right I, i think it's probably not a controversial statement to say that cars are expected to last longer than mobile phones Indeed, right yeah. and and so almost as a requirement uh, the silicon technology that goes into cars um, have to be qualified have to be designed in a in a very different manner mm-hmm. right and i think the second factor is almost an extension of the first point and falana actually touched on this briefly it's how manufacturing capacity is planned mm-hmm. history of the industry where mobile was and still is a very large part of the market is where the prioritization for planning and capacity expansion exists mm-hmm. and and with the automotive industry it's relatively smaller in raw capacity expectations but it's much higher in growth mm-hmm. and, and and you couple that characteristic with um the planning timelines that can be a lot longer okay um you can see how the demand signals within that industry specifically have resulted in kind of this this divergence in ability to meet demand okay and another thing to i would add prakash tim certainly nail it on, on the head in terms of sort of describing what's what's unique about um the automotive industry i would just add a couple other things mm-hmm. um as an end market um you know tim mentioned it's not a controversial statement to say that you know cars are supposed to last longer and uh you know requirements for chips um are different there's a the safety issue you know cars obviously chips need to last and need to perform at a much higher level qualifying the equipment um that even makes uh, auto chips yeah is a long process right so you know in terms of in, in a fab what is making auto chips has to have a higher level of of, of not having errors um than uh, say other types of products that may be more consumer facing and less safety that may have less of a safety uh, component to that end end product um so that's one thing the second thing too um and and the report really um uh, tells us out in 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 really nice detail is auto as an end market tends to have higher concentration of uh legacy chips uh, that are needed right analog think of analog chips or or discrete products that may not ne- be ne- needed to be built on you know leading process technology nodes right um so think of mm-hmm. you know legacy nodes uh you know 90 nanometer 180 nanometer or even uh, older there's a lot of chips in, in many systems in a car i think i think the report mentioned maybe over like 70% of the actual number of chips in a car which i think the report mentioned is about 1000 to maybe 3500 uh, depending on the type of car are really made on these legacy nodes so so a lot of uh, during the chip shortage a lot of the the, the demand was being pr- put on a uh, need for the legacy node, node ca- capacity and as tim mentioned the economics of the industry you know there's there is less incentive right for companies uh for the industry to add more capacity and for for those types of products um than there are for you know leading edge products that can garner higher uh, yield higher margin right you know so um so that's just a you know sort of function of the the industries uh what's needed for the industry and the incentives and in, uh, the economics of the industry 
that's interesting and counterintuitive right you would think that there is much higher demand for the latest nodes and you know you can see okay there is supply you know disruption and because of that shortage there but you're saying there is less of an investment because of lower margins in these mature nodes uh, but most of these mature nodes go into automotive and there's no investment going and that's kind of is the reason behind uh, extreme uh, short squeeze on automotives that's kind of very counterintuitive in my view I was going to say, you know, I think this speaks to a very profound point mm -hmm. that we wanted to make in the paper is that supply is not fungible, right? You can't just move supply from one node to another. That's a great point. As, as far as the general public is concerned, right? If they don't get a car and they think, well, there's a chip shortage. Um, what's really important to understand is that chip shortage must be seen as a solution oriented shortage, Right. So when Falan says there's a, you know, a thousand to thirty five hundred chips in an automobile, mm -hmm. you know, you miss out on a hundred of those chips. You don't have the solution you need for that car. True. Conversely, in a smartphone, there's about one hundred and seventy different types of chips in a smartphone. So there's just more opportunity in a more diverse field of supply for something to go wrong. And then you add to that the fact that supply isn't fungible. Um, you can definitely see how automotive specifically was an industry that got hit much more dramatically with the disruption. Prakash, one number that you know sort of sticks in my mind from looking at you know sort of industry market uh, numbers for a while, it's uh, value of semiconductor uh, of the semiconductor market is about depending on from year to year eighty uh, to eighty five percent IC, which is sort of the higher end type of uh, semiconductor compared to discrete products, right? Which are sort of lower end. Mm -hmm. So think of eighty percent of say a five hundred billion dollar market. Eighty percent of that value in dollars is comprised of selling of ICs, memory chips, mm -hmm. microprocessors, mm -hmm. um, logic chips. Um, you know all the, the 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 sort of high value many transistors on a chip kind of uh, product. Conversely. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just the reverse in terms of the actual number of units sold in the world. So in terms of the number of units sold, usually between 80 to 85% of the total number of units sold are discrete products, mm -hmm. are, are really cheap products, right? That don't cost that much, are like ubiquitous in the world. And 20% or so are the act are actual IC. So the world is not really, is much more uh, full of uh, discrete products. And it's sort of balanced out in sort of the number of chips in an average car, which you have about 70% of the are discrete products, very low value, you know, maybe costing five cents, you know, cent or, you know, not much. Uh, and the and and the other twenty percent is you know uh, twenty to thirty percent would be um, ICs. So when you have a shortage, you need like Tim said, you need the whole suite of chips for a car, or the whole thousand to thirty five hundred. You're likely going to be short uh, the eighty percent of the actual units of the of the of the of the discrete products, the, the lower value chips that that don't cost that much. Um, but you still need the whole the whole uh, suite of, of of chips for your car to work and for to, to sell a car. So I thought that, that was always interesting the the difference between the eighty and twenty percent um, in terms of the value of the of the market and in terms of the number of of the types of units sold. That indeed is very revealing, right? I mean, nobody would expect that because most of the time everybody is focused on the latest node. When is the latest node coming? Who will supply? What is the yield and so on? But the crux is in the mature nodes and the you know supply thereof. Th that kind of uh, sets the stage very right for my next question, which is the reaction in terms of solving this shortage. You know, as noted in the report, many governments in the world seem to think 
self-sufficiency is the answer to this and investing heavily in setting up fabs and so on. And that's great. But I think that only addresses the one specific issue of fabs. But the, the issue is much larger, right? I mean, the semiconductor supply chain is much more than just fabs. So what do you think? Does just focusing on fabs, paying companies to deploy fabs, especially in the uh, latest nodes, would that help in solving this issue? So it's it's a really interesting question, one that I I worry we don't have the, the proper amount of time to thoroughly address. Uh-huh. Um, so what I will say is, you know, we were very specific in our paper uh, to ensure that the language we, we use was value chain, not supply chain. Okay. Right. And so the cost of manufacturing supply, they're all associated with underlying technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the industry has done is create kind of this virtuous cycle of collaboration between design and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Right. So now your design houses that partner and collaborate with manufacturing. It isn't just a, you know, it isn't just a design that you lob over into manufacturing. Mm-hmm. There is a collaboration and development process in partnership with your supplier to ensure that your design is feasible economically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that, that kind of reinforces my previous statement around how supply isn't necessarily immediately fungible. Right? Okay. And so with the kind of um, emphasis on supply specifically, you do risk offsetting kind of the equilibrium that globalization of the industry has has kind of naturally evolved into. Um, do I believe it'll help address the challenges? Potentially, yes, right? Because supply is top of mind. Um, but we wanted to be very clear in our paper that it really is one part of a very complex equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think, um, well, it depends on what you're trying to solve for. I think obviously there have been, and I think the report makes a really has a whole chapter and really sort of uh, drills into this. There has been, as the industry has evolved, um, there have been um, uh, specialization and areas where there are, have become sort of choke points or areas where there's a high concentration of a certain activity uh, within the the global value chain for semiconductors uh, in a specific region or in a specific uh, country, for example. I think the report outlines that Mm -hmm. the vast majority of, of front end fabrication capacity um, over 70% is now in Asia and not in the US. And so if you're trying to solve for creating some sort of resiliency or redundancy within the uh, value chain to say, okay, well, we, we want to have other uh, options or be sure that there's not just one location or one uh, one company or a handful of companies that are only doing one one piece of the, uh, of the supply chain that could create a, a bottleneck or a choke point, then Yes, adding more capacity for uh, manufacturing is important, given what we've just gone through over the past couple of years, right? Um, at the same time, though, and I think this is um, the difference, again, which both Tim and I had sort of alluded to, when you talk about the value chain instead of the supply chain, then you're talking about trying to also be sure that you don't shortchange innovation, right? And shortchange trying to uh, invest in maintaining innovation, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in the design side of, of the equation, even in the process technology side, right? You know, the, the industry, semiconductors, you know, Moore's law innovation is just, uh, you know, sort of part of how the industry operates. And it's important that, that, that there's still investment in trying to continue to innovate and enable, therefore, downstream industries in the way that the industry has just done in a spectacular manner over the past several decades, right? So I think that's sort of the balance. Yes, manufacturing is important to think of, especially in the short term of how do we consider how to build resiliency 
so that we don't have a situation where there are these choke points of only one or two locations or companies that are doing a critical component, but also look at the bigger picture of, hey, how do we be sure that we're still incentivizing and and promoting innovation overall in terms of R&D, design especially, uh, and even process technology. Yeah, cool. There's a really interesting um, balance we have to strike between our use of the term short term as well, right? Because we are making immediate investments domestically, at least, in, in building up manufacturing capacity. And when we say short term, this is capacity that likely won't come online for another three to five years. Yeah, true. Right? And that coming online mm-hmm. is in partnership with design houses. The, the building of the facility, of the manufacturing capability, um, you don't realize the advantages of those until you have ecosystem partners who work with you to establish the process technology associated with the products that you ultimately want to push out of your fab. Yeah. Right. So when we say short term, it's still actually a very long game. Uh, do you see that this investment is going on not just at the top end of the node, uh, but also at the mature nodes? Well, I think it still um, uh, remains to be seen. You know, I think um, there is a potential, certainly on in gov- what governments have proposed doing, you know, efforts to look broadly. And I think from the point of view of, of Qualcomm, you know, I think, you know, in terms of on the manufacturing side, you know, trying to invest um, at capacity, both on the leading edge and the legacy node is really important. You know, that's in terms of, you know, obviously what we make, um, but also to in terms of where the chip shortage has really felt the most pain, right? And I think, um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, there's less of an incentive because of costs, uh, profit uh, to invest in legacy uh, node capacity or 200 millimeter fabs, for example, that sort of focus on this. Um, so this is, in fact, what I would, would should be considered as part of a of the the components in a incentive program that uh, any government should really think about is how to incentivize that uh, leading uh, that legacy capacity production. Just given the fact that there may be sort of a, a market failure there, right? You know, again, there's just less of an incentive to add capacity in that area. So if there was some sort of way that governments were able to create more of an incentive to do so that I think would help alleviate any potential disruption going forward, uh, given how prominent legacy chips are in end products, as we just discussed, like in a car or a a cell phone, where the vast majority of the content of the number of the actual chip units are non-IC discrete products. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And I think the report has many other suggestions as well. Could you briefly explain them? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the uh-huh. pre, what are the, one of the key topics that we touch on is the idea of protectionism versus Moore's law, right? There are, without a doubt, product, productive ways to invest uh, regionally, uh, productive ways to stimulate growth within the industry strategically, mm-hmm. right? And and the general direction of the paper is to advise on the effectiveness of that strategy versus what could be seen as counterproductive, right? And when I say counterproductive, I mean anything that limits collaboration. This is an industry with a lot of key players. It's an industry that makes very large bets, mm-hmm. right? And, and these companies cannot continue to make these large bets um, and only have them pay out one out of 10 times, right? That's not a sustainable business model. Yeah. So collaboration within the concept of a semiconductor ecosystem across the entire value chain is incredibly important. And so anything that limits that the ability to collaborate, even within potential competitors, is not necessarily good for innovation or the direction of the industry. I think the second piece that we, we focus on 
is the idea of talent, mm-hmm. right? Talent is going to be an incredibly critical part of the conversation within the industry over the next decade. The industry's historically had access to kind of a global talent pool based on the fa- the way it's built itself globally. Mm-hmm. And as the world identifies how this industry is going to operate and collaborate both geographically and with other industries, mm-hmm. the talent requirements to sustain it uh, will become increasingly specific right, by the end user, by automotive versus mobile, right? Um, they'll be increasingly restrictive, right? If um, there is a segmentation of technology, right? And they'll be increasingly competitive as silicon plays a larger, larger and larger role in the overall technology landscape. Yeah, I would just add, you know, uh, Tim is absolutely right in terms of um, what he highlighted, um, especially talent. I would highlight in terms of the messages from or actions from the report. Mm-hmm. I think there were five total, but if you boil it down um, in some ways or bucket them, it's really, I think, two, really. And, and they do, and they both relate, again, to the value creation and enabling innovation in, in the industry. And one is talent and one is also R&D, right? So those are the two two ingredients, right? That you don't want to, um, or if you were to take them away or to limit them, to reduce them, right? Um, that that would actually have a, a directly negative effect in how the industry could innovate and enable downstream industries, right? The, the semiconductor industry is just this amazing enabling industry, right? That enables so many end products uh, downstream, cars, cell phones, uh, you know, smartphones, consumer goods. It's just, and, and, and more and more end products now, right? It's sort of that hardware that just uh, the brains behind all these products, right? So if you limit those two things, um, you know, the the ability to, to incentivize R&D and to have R&D and also not enabling talent, then you kind of limit the industry. Uh, one point on talent, I think talent uh, has really two components that I think are really important to think about. Uh, and, and for, I would say for policymakers to also think about. One is STEM, right? In, ter- in terms of trying to encourage from a very early age, interest in math, science, engineering, you know, sort of those types of fields that uh, sort of help uh, create the long-term pipeline uh, for uh, talent within the semiconductor industry with electrical engineers and such um, that are really the ones doing this, creating these fantastic products. And the second is high-skilled immigration, right? That is something that I think, uh, especially in the U.S., is, you know, when there's so much demand for 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 talent, um, that is a much more short-term uh, solution, right? Uh, that that can that can readily address some of the talent shortages, um, you know, in a matter of months or years instead of sort of decades, right? If, with the long-term in, investment in STEM, which is rightfully important to do, but maybe a longer-term uh, longer-term investment. Yeah, very well. So uh, now the golden question. I hope you guys have brought your crystal ball to the discussion today. So when do you think or see the chip shortage to end? And what are some of the early indications that will tell us that uh, the squeeze is ending? Yeah, so that I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to take a specific position yeah. on when the chip shortage will end, but... Um, I will say that the entire semiconductor value chain is is easily five to seven years deep on any term, mm-hmm. right? So you you know take that statement as you will. I, I personally believe it will end before a full demand cycle, um, and that'll be a combination of basic supply chain improvement initiatives. And then one thing that we haven't touched on is the ingenuity of product companies, right? Because mm-hmm. um, as this demand signal ripples through the entire value chain. Right. The ingenuity of product companies mm-hmm. means that they can create alternative solutions, 
right? Work with what you can get, mold your products and what you're trying to deliver to the customer to what's available. It'll be really interesting to follow the ebb and flow of that process. As far as, you know, early indicators on when we're coming out of this squeeze, I think you know where I'm going with this, but I'd watch the premium tier, right? Not only do they command a manufacturing premium, Mm -hmm. but these are the industries who can best adapt quickly to an increasing influx of supply, right? So that's where we'll see the responses manifesting themselves um, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I would, I would add, you know, the, I'm not too worried. I don't think that's too controversial to say. I'm not too worried that the industry is going to address uh, the demand uh, and and, and increase supply. I think the industry has uh, demonstrated uh, over its history, its ability to increase supply, to meet demand. The industry is highly cyclical, but it does take time. And I think that is something that I think certainly the the report has shown. I think we've, um, that, that over the past year or so has become more clear in, in people's minds. I like that I've said over the past several months, you know, there's no such thing as a pop-up fab, right? You know, you don't just, you know, sort of say, oh, there's added, added and there's increased demand in this country. Let's just build a fab in a matter of weeks and, you know, address that demand, right? Building a semiconductor is the most, it's the most high-tech innovative type of manufacturing process literally in the world, right? You're, you're taking sand and you're creating something that helps you communicate uh, in the instance of a cell phone, components that help you communi- communicate over thousands of miles to people and to do video chats, such as this, right? right? Yeah. So it's, it's it's incredibly complex. You can't just make something that does that in a matter of days or increase that capacity. Um, there's just sort of, a, sort of a law of physics that say, you know, okay, lead times in the semiconductor industry and cycle times are are X, right? You know, and, and that's a constant. It's usually around, you know, three to four or five months or so, right? When there is a capacity. So the industry, I think, right. has um, increased capacity. Um, uh, it just, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, 2021, the industry sold more chips, uh, more units uh, than in any other uh, year previous, um, which was quite a Herculean task to, uh, given how long it takes to build fabs. And now the industry obviously is building new fabs. Uh, adding capex, um, I think in 2021, capex was at record levels, uh, 100 oh, around 150 billion uh, being uh, spent in capex, and again in 2022. So the industry is doing what it can do in the the ways that it ha- that it can do it uh, to meet capacity. So I think it, that that's all um, moving forward. Obviously, one issue I think to kind of pay attention to, you know, I think the demand environment again is uh, you know sort of rocky. And, you know, we talk about, you know, we see increasing inflation, uh, you know, the geo- geopolitical uh, landscape is, um, you know, sort of tenuous and sort of uh, uh, rife with, um, you know, sort of troubles uh, here and there. So I'm also just keeping an eye out on demand and looking to be sure that demand doesn't weaken, because obviously with demand weakening, that will also, you know, sort of help with uh, meeting demand, um, though I don't think that's the ideal way to meet demand. But I think, you know, given what's going on in the world uh, in terms of that macroeconomic picture is something they definitely keep an eye on. Exactly. You know, with inflation uh, continuing and everybody thought it's going to be short term, but it uh, looks like it's here for some time. How that affects demand is going to be a, a crucial thing. It's really funny for me, at least to hear Falan say he's not worried about the, the shorts from supply because that is, you know, and hopefully not too controversial, but everybody we talk to within the industry doesn't seem as um, obsessed or concerned with the supply crunch as the general public is, uh-huh. right? Because within the industry, there's kind of this inherent understanding of, of how it operates, right? This, we're, we're looking at a two or three year timeline. It, it, it is the law of physics, right? It doesn't get shorter. Um, and so the question that, that is more relevant to us in the industry is how do we 
build a robust business? How do we build a robust mm-hmm. signal um, that can propagate through the entire value chain for long-term planning? Right? That, is, that is the challenge that we want to address. Um, the short-term supply shortage you know, is obviously kind of a dead sprint to try and meet the end needs, but there's very little that can be done you know, month to month um, that versus what can truly be accomplished with a you know, three to five year horizon. Yeah, the whole idea is not to have this situation again, right? In the future, make sure the ecosystem is robust enough that uh, that this doesn't happen again, right? So I, I think that's a great uh, you know place to end our discussion. Again, thank you very much for coming over. It indeed was a very informative discussion. A lot of revelations, like for example, the uh, the difference in terms of uh, the mature node versus uh, latest node uh, supply and demand. I uh, know that was a very interesting revelation to me going through the report and talking to you guys. And uh, as you guys mentioned, the short will be there for some time and I uh, hope to see you back on the show again, maybe in next uh, few months or next year or so to see where we stand, how the industry coped up with this, you know, improvised and optimized for the situation that we are in. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Prakash. Appreciate it. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Sure. So, folks, that's all for now. I hope you found this discussion informative and useful. I'll be back very soon with another episode, putting light on another interesting tech subject. Bye-bye for now.